0: Hello, everyone. My name is Dr. Fergal Armstrong, and welcome to this episode of Cracking Addiction. And today we're going to speak with Dr. Laura Petrochek and her journey in recovery. So, Laura, I believe that today is a particularly significant milestone for you.
1: Yes, it is, Fergal. It's my 47th year clean and sober. Well,
0: first of all, congratulations. Thank you. Yeah, so how did you do it? This is the thing. If you could, bo- if we could bottle what you did and what you continue to do on a daily basis, that would be amazing, wouldn't it?
1: Ah, uh, yes, it would be. I think I agree. So, I tell every- me your secret. Well, I don't necessarily think I have a secret. Um, everyone's journey is different. Um, I think a big part in the beginning what helped me is that. Uh, my best friend at the time, our sobriety dates were a week apart. So it's like I had a buddy in recovery. Sometimes now in the rooms I hear, oh, so-and-so and I are litter mates, meaning they came into the rooms at the same time. So I had a litter mate, as it were. And wow. that was really helpful to be not just accountable, like not just having a home group, but having one specific person. As a go to person.
0: So you what what I'm hearing then it was a meaningful connection with a non drug using peer who was as committed to abstinence as you were and was able to walk with you in your journey, and share a journey.
1: Exactly. Yeah.
0: So can we go back forty seven years ago and to the time when you first of all realized that there was a problem? Take us through that through, through what was happening back then
1: well i'm going to take you back just a little bit more <laughs> because all i right. first came to recovery when i was 17 i started drinking young i come from an alcoholic family started doing drugs and by the time i was 17 i was drinking like a case of beer a day smoking pot all day doing speed i was just getting high all the time smoking pot and um and I was suffering from severe depression, and uh, at one point, my, I was crying every morning uh, at the breakfast table, and I said, you know, I don't know what's wrong. I said, I don't know. I need help. So she took me to a psychiatrist who put me on, I'm not sure what kind of antidepressant, but unfortunately, it is what they have a warning label now for adolescents that take antidepressants that it can make you feel a little bit better, but a little bit better. So you have energy to actually commit suicide. And so, uh, one evening I took a bunch of sleeping pills from my parents and then all my pills and I laid them out one by one. I probably took over 200 sleeping pills and, um, I blacked out. I really don't remember what happened. My, uh, My dad said, oh, she's high. put her to bed. But my mom, she said, no, something's wrong. She looked all through my room, found the empty bottles, called the ambulance. I coded in the ambulance. I was dead on arrival. I was in a coma for a week. And it was really touch and go. Mm -hmm. And when I woke up, I honestly was not happy to be alive because I thought, not this shit again. Like, I didn't know. I had no tools for living. And I thought, I cannot go back to how I was living. I'll, I'll never make it. And so they had a woman, uh, kind of fast forward. I was in an adolescent psych unit. They had a woman from AA come to talk to me. And she said, well, I don't think you're crazy. I think you're alcoholic. And I said, really? I said, I'm 17. I can't be alcoholic. She goes, yeah, I think so. I was like, okay. You know, I didn't have a lot of resistance because, mm. again, the situation that I would be going back to was a worse situation, at least in my mind. So, um, but then we had the issue of, uh, so my parents weren't really on board with treatment. They wanted me to go to a Catholic high school or do something else. So, um, this woman helped me go through the emancipation process and then I was able to sign myself into treatment and i was there for 9 months and it was the best 9 months of my life it was the first time i knew what a family was being happy learning how to live without drinking or drugs um,
0: eventually why I was it happy
1: uh, because people were loving and caring um you know i started to cry but um, just Sorry. to be you know I, I come from a family of 10 people so I was very much invisible um, mm. and really you know trying to commit suicide was probably the first time I really felt seen sad as that sounds there is mm. um, there was just a lot of chaos um, with you know parents drinking my brother dealing drugs out of the basement it was just pretty much a shit show and um how I survived was school. You know, I just dug into school, I'd go to the library. At one point in California, the schools were so crowded, they had double session and I begged my parents so I could go to school to both of them, meaning 7 a.m. to 5 p.m. So I wouldn't have to be home. And um, yeah, school saved me for sure.
0: School saved you from what? That's what I want to
1: know. Uh, from the despair, from the chaos, from I was really bullied a lot at home and at school, but at least if I was in the library and no one really bullied me. But at home, there was no safe place. You know, I had five brothers. They're pretty much one in particular is very sadistic. And my parents never intervened. And I think they were overwhelmed and in their own Alcohol use stuff. So I really didn't want to be there. I wasn't safe. Um, so that's why I didn't want to be home. Um, yeah, they'd say really mean things like, so the thing was, my brother would steal my food. He'd say I'd eaten. He'd call me names like Porky the Pig. At school, they'd call me Scally because I was so real thin and starving. And the school nurse said, uh, "I don't know. I think you might have leukemia. I'm going to call your parents in." And um, that's, you know, I mean, when I came into rehab, I was probably 90 pounds soaking wet, and I was five six. Um, so uh, yeah, I, um, I, you know, I remember early into rehab. It'd be five o'clock and I, you know, time to have dinner. And I didn't even have breakfast or lunch. I just learned how to not be hungry. Um, my parents would lock the freezer because there were so many of us. And I learned how to set the alarm at two and go in the freezer. And to this day, frozen food is still a delicacy. How sad is that? But it is. Because um, that's when I could get food. Um, so it was not a good situation. Shouldn't, yeah. And and then I started going to meetings, you know, when I was going to leave rehab. And uh, so I moved out with some other folks. I went to get my alcoholism certificate at a community college. I was working full time. And then at about 11 months sobriety, I thought, well, I, I, I'm going to go do some more research. I don't really think I'm out. So I did do more research and it wasn't like the first time, meaning I wasn't loaded, you know, or high morning, noon, night, but I tried controlled drinking, which didn't go too well, <laughs> but um, I gave it my best shot and I can't tell you exactly what the incident was before I, uh, got sober on September 7th, 1976, but it was, uh, I was with my godparents, and I don't know something bad happened. They were even too embarrassed to tell me. So I thought, okay, I don't even know. I don't even want to know, but I know where I need to go back to, and I went back to AA. So every,
0: I mean, first of all, I want to thank you for your bravery and sharing this story. It's, It's it's heartbreaking, but unfortunately, it's not atypical for people who find themselves affected with substance use disorders and everyone has a a kind of a a starting point with alcohol and a tipping point with alcohol. What was your starting point with alcohol? When did you first realize that alcohol could, could be your friend for a short time at least?
1: Yeah, I would say probably seventh grade. My friends and I would go in my parents' liquor cabinet and you know, we drink so much and then fill it with water and <laughs> try to, to not have it be noticed. And uh, and then, uh, you know, my brothers were older and they could get alcohol, so they would get us alcohol. And um, but yeah, it. I, I didn't really feel the tipping point probably until eighth grade. I think when I got drunk, so just drinking a beer didn't do a lot for me, but. I love being totally just out. I started blacking out when I was in ninth grade.
0: What? I mean, why did it? Uh, why was it so attractive for you?
1: Because it took away the pain. Yeah. That I was living in. I was, you know, I was already suicidal in, in seventh grade, and uh, so it, it took that pain all away. It took it away. And it also was a good social lubricant. I was very shy. I still am. And so, but it really helped me make connections with other kids, you know, and getting hired drinking with other kids was like the fast track to social life as a teenager.
0: Yeah. May I ask, why Why were you feeling suicidal in high school?
1: Again, I think I told you some of the family background. Hmm. And um, and then also I started struggling with my sexuality in high school. Mm-hmm. And I thought I might be gay and like, I did not want to be gay. Everyone hated gay people. I hated gay people, and especially being raised Catholic. Like, forget it. I'm going to go to hell. So um, that was another reason I was suicidal. I just didn't want to be who I was. I didn't want to be who I was even separate from struggling with my sexual identity. I, you know, all the other girls were cuter, had more personality, you know, got along easier with people. You know, like I said, in my family is very isolated. Um, the room they put me or not put me in, but the room I was in used to be a porch and then they made it into a room. And this was a Minnesota I was fucking freezing in this thing. And um, and then I was separated from the house. So, I mean, you know, I already felt like I don't belong at home. I don't belong in school. I don't belong anywhere. So what am I doing here? It was just very, very painful. And that feeling of belonging is still a big struggle.
0: There's there's two key kind of thought processes that I, I worry about when I, when I chat to people who are feeling the way you felt, and feeling as if you're a burden, or feeling as if you don't belong, are really for me red flags.
1: Yeah, so you, don't you,
0: belong. You, you didn't belong. No. So you felt utterly alone in a world surrounded by strangers who were who were judging you.
1: Well, they didn't even know what was going on for me. I was I was surrounded by strangers. Sadly enough, my own family were strangers. The kids were strangers. I mean, these are supposed to be my friends, but when I was in the psych ward, they broke into my room and stole all my drugs and alcohol. Those were my friends.
0: Your journey into alcohol started with basically the freedom from social anxiety and also the quest for oblivion to take away your pain.
1: Yeah, and major depression.
0: Right. And major depression. Yeah. Now, and that was what year? What year? That was seventh grade, you said. <laughs>
1: I was 71, I was in ninth grade, so like 68, 69. And then you
0: you talk about this desire to suddenly come clean and, and stop drinking alcohol. Let's go back over that, that that particular event. Was there a tipping point or was it a gradual realization?
1: Yeah, no, you mean that I went back out? Yeah. Is that what you mean? Yeah, I actually was really starting at that time with, my sexuality and um so when i was drinking i could have sex with men and then it was fine but if i was yeah. sober it didn't go so well so that was mm. a big tipping point it was easier to be straight when i was drinking
0: then you had your overdose and then you went to the supportive environment that nine months and you were the happiest in the world you said
1: yeah It was so great like i never knew what a family could be like like people say good morning and people say you know i love you i care about you like the the first time i experienced a hug was in rehab and i just couldn't start i couldn't stop sobbing you know i never had a physical connection yeah
0: So your, your inflection point into, into abstinence was basically the suicide attempt and being reached out to by someone from AA, who then introduced you to this, into this supportive environment. Yeah. And there you felt as if you belonged. Yeah. 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 So again, we've got this theme of social connection.
1: Right. And not just belonging, but people who cared and see me. Yeah. You know. Like they had, I finished school in rehab and, you know, I finished like a year and a half early and they were like, well, I said, oh, can I just start college? They're like, well, no, you can't. And, but so it was hard because school like became my drug of choice and I really missed not doing it just for the short periods of time. But anyway, yeah, um, the rehab was great. My parents did come eventually to family group. And then my counselor told me that my mom was drunk each, like a couple times. And then I don't think they came anymore after that.
0: Moving forward, you're, you, you kind of dabbled with controlled drinking a little bit. Now, we, we've talked in other episodes about how, at least I've expressed to you, how I feel that people who have a, an alcohol use disorder, when they start thinking about controlled drinking, well, that's actually a cognitive distortion. Would you be happy to talk about your thought processes around controlled drinking when you were trying it?
1: So, a couple things. Um, when I was uh, in school to be an alcoholism counselor, we had to write a paper on our theory of uh, alcohol, alcohol, yeah, alcoholism or chemical dependency. And so, I wrote a thesis on chemical independency, meaning I'm not dependent on chemicals. <laughs> <And> so, <laughs> So the professor gave me an A. He thought it was I did a lot of good research, so it was well, well researched. But here's the thing: what happened for me about controlled drinking? So, like you and I are talking now, but let's say I decided on Friday I'm going to have two drinks at six. That's all I would be thinking about. I wouldn't hear a word you're saying, Fergal. I would just be thinking in my head, obsessing. I can't wait till Friday at six o'clock. So yeah. I missed whole conversations at times because yeah. I was obsessing about what i could drink and then um most of the time it wasn't just two drinks you know it was 20 i mean my capacity to consume alcohol was just unbelievable i just couldn't believe it but i but i could you know because i did you know i'd have drinking games with guys and i'd always drink anyone under the table any guy under the table and i was actually proud of it you know And they were like, how do you do that? But, but yeah, it didn't, you know, uh, it didn't do well. Here's another uh, really negative consequence is that I I didn't have enough money because I was spending so much money on drinking and doing drugs again. So I moved back home after not being home for three years. That was not a good place for me. So getting sober, I moved back out and uh, yeah.
0: So you moved back home when you were in the phase of thinking you could do controlled drinking. Is that right? Yeah. All right. So what was the thinking behind that? Why did you think moving back home would be a good idea?
1: Well, I knew it wasn't, but I didn't have enough money to support myself. And, you know, nowadays parents give their kids money like water. But, you know, back then, you know, if I could get a dime from them, I was lucky. So it it didn't happen Mm. like that. I needed one of my roommates moved out. I asked for money to cover for the rent. Yeah. Sorry about your luck. And so um, I moved back. And then it was just comfortable in a sense of because most everyone drank. So I could just then no one was going to say anything about my drinking. But um, but I could tell I was going downhill fast, and I was like, I know I need to get back to AA.
0: So you were effectively you'd relapsed. You know, you were back in an environment that was enabling your alcohol use. Oh, so for started.
1: sure, huge yeah. enabler, huge yeah. enabler, yeah.
0: So where did where had the controlled drinking gone at this stage? <laughs> was it was that? Um...
1: Where has the cold drinking gone? <laughs> 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 <down> the <laughs> it went way far away. It went, it, it, right. it was an experiment. Right. Okay. I was just talking with a client earlier today about her. I call, I said, I call them a little science experience. Like she was trying to do these little cans of alcohol instead of a bottle of wine. And she said, Laura, all of a sudden, I realized I was drinking like I had 16 of those cans, which is, you know, three times more than a bottle of wine. So yeah, I realized my science experiments were not working and uh, yeah. I couldn't really write and I knew it. I, I knew it. And I and I liked my life better sober, even though I didn't like feeling so much, but it was definitely a better life.
0: So, I mean, you know, we're talking about science experiments, right? But if science experiments are dependent on feedback loops, right? Yes. In fact, I, I would I would actually argue that the whole of life is dependent on feedback loops. but. Were you getting the signal that actually controlled drinking was a disaster for you or were you ignoring that signal?
1: Uh, I was getting a single a signal. Um, I was driving in blackouts, so that scared the yeah. shit out of me. Um, I was not doing well in school, and school was a huge, like, marker for me. Um mm. You know, I was, like I said, uh, dating men again only when I was drinking. So that was a marker. And I ended up, this was the hugest marker. Oh, I was, I was mortified. So at that time, then I had a job at a rehab. Someone came to me and said, Oh, you know, I heard you went through a rehab and we're opening Allison Rehab and we don't really know anyone who's sober that's your age. Would you be willing to work for us? And I'm like, Oh my God, yeah. But at that time, I was maybe like, not even sober yet, but then I was sober. So they threw me this huge three-year surprise party. And I only at that time, then, you know, cause I'd gone back to A, I I only had nine months sober. So I told right. the director I fully expected to get fired and they didn't fire me, uh, but that like was okay. So let's just cut it, Laura. Yeah, All right. love this work yeah. and just, yeah.
0: Then then the second sign moment happened, you know, that moment when you knew this is it, you know, I really do have to get back to AI and this is it. I really do have to stick on my on my recovery journey and no more controlled drinking and this is it. What 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 happened in your life that made you think that way?
1: Well, like I said, you know, the job. Um and see at this time so, I was diagnosed with bipolar disorder at three years clean and sober. Mm. But I was starting yeah. to experience some of the bipolar but I didn't know what it was. And I had, in therapy, in AA, had been like this all throughout my recovery. If it wasn't for therapy, I definitely wouldn't be here either. Um, but my therapist would start asking, because I was starting to sink into despair. And I'm like, you know, this is. And now I'm sober and what's happening? You know, it was really scary. Um, So I knew drinking wouldn't help that. And I knew what had happened in the past, you know, and I just thought, no, this time, you know, I just got to definitely stay sober. I don't want to risk that again. And, um, but I was really like in recovery, I saw a lot of people, their lives seemed to do this trajectory and mine went this way. And I yeah. could not for me figure it out. I was going to all these meetings and sponsoring and recovery. And my therapist is like, well, you have a mood disorder. You have, you know, you're depressed. But she goes, I think it's something more. And then she started asking me each week if I was suicidal. But I was lying. I was suicidal, but I didn't want to tell her. Because then I thought I'm going to end up in a psych ward again. But now I'm an adult. And I don't know. I don't think that's going to be such a good place for me. So I lied to her for months and I was just no, like I... holding my fingernails. And then I called my sponsor like three in the morning. I said, I'm, you know, I'm not going to make it. And she came and got me and she brought me to a rehab. And then they did a bunch of testing and they said, you have manic depression, which now is called bipolar disorder. And you need to go on lithium. And at that time in AA, AA did not, was not a big believer in medication. Mm. And so the AA groups I belonged to, except for one, a women's group, the rest are like, no, you're not. If you take that lithium, you're not going to be, you're not sober. So I told them I'm not taking it. And then the women's AA group, I kind of considered them family. They actually came to family group. They're very sweet because um, now I'm an adult and well, we know. My family story. So um, they had they got me a T-shirt that said winner, you know, and I forgot about that. Like there's a saying: AA, stick with the winners. But I felt like such yeah. a loser. I am going to be three years sober in, a, in rehab, but it was the bipolar disorder. And um, so I finally agreed to take the lithium.
0: And did, did they allow you to join their group? Whilst being on lithium Oh,
1: I, I was actually part of their group before I went in. So right. yeah.
0: So they didn't reject you because of your use of medication. No, they didn't. But other other groups within other the groups. AA organization did. I find that very difficult to accept. I mean lithium's yeah. not a yeah. you don't yeah. get high on lithium. It's a, it's a life saving yeah. drug.
1: I mean this is, you know, fifty years ago you gotta you know. I have to put the context in there too. Mm. But um, or 47 years when really, it was longer than that. But um, but yeah, and that that really changed my life more than AA. I was like, oh my god, is this what living is? I've just mm. been surviving, even sober. I was not having the two cars in the garage and happily ever after. I was struggling yeah. every single day, every single day. And I could not figure out why. But, you know, I just kept going to meetings, thank God I didn't drink. But, uh, yeah, lithium was like this magic elixir. And mm. uh, I was so, like, wow, this is a missing piece. So not only were
0: you struggling with... Not belonging and not f- being cared for by your family, you were also struggling with your sexual identity. and you must have been struggling with at least the prodrome of bipolar disorder when you were a, a teenager. And you had you had so three things that were really, you know, they were really setting you off, course, not just one, but three things. And yet, you won. You are a winner, Laura. I can't put it any other way. You know, you've managed to get through that, where lesser mortals would perhaps have failed. Thank you. That yeah. means a lot to
1: me. But and it's so true. I, I am uh, lucky. I do feel very grateful because I really didn't yeah. think I'd make it this far at all. Yeah. And I'm, I'm very glad I have.
0: So I think you need to be congratulated, or the the 20 to 25-year-old Laura needs to be congratulated because without her, we wouldn't have the Laura Petroček today that we know and love.
1: Uh Oh,
0: thanks. So after that diagnosis was made and after you were started on lithium, did your life and and you continued in your journey of sobriety. Did your life take a turn for the better?
1: My life took a huge turn for the better. And so much so, <laughs> whereas I had accepted my alcohol use disorder, after a year and a half on lithium, I decided I did not need lithium anymore. Mm. And... It wasn't a, a huge change initially, but it made my recovery just 10 times harder. And then, you know, I had therapists who, it wasn't until 10 years ago, a therapist, I was ter- he asked me, what mood stabilizer are you on? And I said, uh, what's today, Thursday? Or no, he said, how long since you've been on a mood stabilizer? And I was like, "Okay, was it Thursday?" I said about thirty years, and he was like, "What?" And it made my life so much harder, you know. I was, they uh, prescribed antidepressants, which helped a little, but then it also triggered that um, that uh, manic, not manic, mm. uh, hypomanic. Yeah, hypomanic. Yeah, oh, hypomanic. Yeah, and um, and part of it was I realized is that I still suffered from depression and so not being on the lithium it got me to feel a little happy once in a while when I was hypomanic, although the consequences were got worse and worse and you know by the time I was uh, you know had my daughter and raising my daughter and in my relationship, I'd go to meetings and I'd be like, oh my god I feel I sound like one of them. But I'm still cold, sober. What is going on? And it was mm. being the symptoms of bipolar, but not being properly medicated, meaning I was extremely irritable, mm. you know, angry, and, uh, you know, my moods were like this. My partner didn't know who she was coming home to. And that's like I'd hear at the meetings. Oh, my partner, husband, wife didn't know who they were coming home to when I, when that person was drinking and I said, Oh my God, I sound just like a regular alcoholic, but I'm not drinking. And finally, when I got back on a mood stabilizer, I was like, uh, oh. and I, I had a huge amends and, and continued to for a while, to, um, not just to my partner, but to my daughter. Cause you know, I, the one thing I really wanted was to, make her life like a total 360 from mine growing up and uh yeah i feel like i failed her and uh you know i mean we're we're definitely very close now but things were not we weren't close for a few years and uh after i got back on lithium and then making my amends and Talking to her about bipolar disorder. Cause I had only I've talked to her about addiction, she knows in recovery and depression, but not bipolar. And she yeah. really didn't know about it because she was so angry with me about how I was, you know, that I was just not the nicest person at times. Yeah. So that's been a huge, another big part of my recovery is the mental illness. Uh, when my daughter left for college, I really went into a deep depression. And um, my psychiatrist recommended uh, transcranial magnetic stimulation. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you've heard of it, TMS.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: Yeah. Totally counterindicated if you have bipolar disorder. So, about 12 treatments, and my partner and I are out in Virginia visiting my daughter for a tournament. And I went into a full-blown manic attack. It was horrific. I was scared. The whole thing was a nightmare. And, uh, you know, it took me, and that's where the book came out of, (laughs) my book, uh, because I ended up in a year-long DBT program because I was so dysregulated. Even the medication wasn't making much of a dent. And uh, so whenever I hear anyone mention TMS, I say, no, no, no. Yeah. But again, I have bipolar disorder. You know, I guess if you have, quote, unquote, regular depression, it helps. But that was a huge mistake on their part. And, uh, yeah, that was all, that was like worse than when I was 17 and worse than I was 19, you know, And then worse, when I was 21, when I
0: first was diagnosed. So where where you are now, you are a successful practicing psychologist. You are a successful author with a a book that you would uh, advise others or that you within which you share your wisdom regarding the combination of AA and dialectical behavioral therapy. And that's a that's a in terms of retrospectives that's a that's a huge win isn't it that's a long term success
1: it is a long term success and um and of course you know uh life happens when you're cleaning soap just yeah, like it not yeah. and uh you know several months ago a huge loss of my partner dying and um, yeah. so i'm still uh reeling from that, I mean, today, um, you know, I know we'd be celebrating together. So, uh, so it's, it's a reminder almost more so of her death than of my recovery. But you um, I know she'd want me to celebrate. So I'm going out with my daughter and a couple of friends. Tonight I wasn't going mm. to. My daughter was like, "Mom, you got You know, I yeah, said, she goes, "What are you doing to celebrate?" And I said, "Well, I'm going to be on the podcast and be interviewed." She goes, "Well, you gotta do more than that."
0: <laughs> <laughs> what you mean? There's more to life than us on a podcast.
1: <laughs> she goes, That doesn't sound like. So well,
0: I'm, I'm I'm almost tempted to be offended by that.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, okay, you know, if she's a whatever millennial gen z who knows whatever
0: all right
1: she's a young person and you know their idea of celebrating is different yeah so what we've almost
0: run out of time but i just wanted you to 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 ask you this question what message of hope would you give to someone struggling with mental health issues, struggling with their sexual identity, struggling with not feeling as if they're belonging, struggling with a substance, what would you say to them?
1: I would say keep going, you know, one day at a time. If, you know, depending on which of those issues you mentioned, if it's substance use, reach out to uh, a therapist in in that or a meeting that could help you there if you're struggling with your sexual identity you could go to a lgbq community center or a type of uh, center that could help you Um, if you're suffering with a mental illness you know reach out to a therapist or again a community type clinic but uh, i remember um this one saying, if you're going through hell, keep going, just keep one foot in front of the other. And so many times I would just tell myself just, you know, or in AA, they have this saying, what's the next right thing? And even if I was crying or upset or whatever was going on, someone would say, what's the next right thing? Well, I was going to go swimming. Well, then you're going to go swimming. What's the next right thing? Um, well, I have X, Y, or Z to do, then that's what you're doing. You know, not to get stuck, not to look at where your feet are, not to just keep moving. And go to the people that could give you help in those particular areas. So reach out. You know, now, I mean, I think people are lucky. You know, at the time I went to go see a psychiatrist, I hid in the bottom of uh, the back seat because I was so ashamed. But now mental health is being talked about. And same uh, with substance use, you know. Um, so there's a lot of people out there that you haven't met yet that care about you, that love you, and that want to see you make it. Laura, I think we are run out of time, but I want to thank you for your bravery,
0: your honesty, and also your courage, because I think you've, you can inspire so many other people. Thank you so much, Laura, for your time.
1: Thank you so much for, oh, for having me.
0: That's all for today, folks. My name is Dr. Fergal Armstrong, and this has been Cracking Addiction.